Great. So, welcome everyone to this course. And we are going to talk about sex over the next four weeks. You can applaud that because that's a good thing. You'll hear that a lot, that sex is a good thing, and, um, and it's something that needs to be applauded. This, we call this class Forming a Thoughtful Christian Sexual Ethic because that's something that's sorely missing in our culture um, among, within the church and outside of the church is a thoughtful Christian ethic, a thoughtful Christian sexual ethic in particular. In your, go ahead and with your workbook, open it up, and there's a, the first page in there is a resource page. I've put, there's a lot of, you're going to see a lot of quotes and a lot of passages from different books and different works throughout your workbook. There's more than we'll be able to cover because I want you to be able to take these books home and reflect on what you've read, take notes in them. I've tried to put as much scripture in the book as possible so you can actually take notes on it without worrying about drawing all in your Bible or having to underline or whatever. But um, there's also quotes and citations from a number of works. I've listed some of the main ones that I recommend on the first page. And just as a list of, of, these are all books that you can go check out if you like what you're reading from one of the authors or if I mentioned something. And then at the bottom, my ministry, Disciple Dojo, have a number of, uh, well, there's a whole page on it that has to do with uh, audio, video, and articles about sex and dating and romance and, and all of that kind of stuff from a Christian perspective. But then there's also a series of discussions that I've had, and I learn best in conversation with people. When I can discuss and argue and debate and listen and be challenged and all of that stuff. So I did a series of two dialogues on the blog for my ministry with a, a friend who's a pastor out in the Midwest, and, and he and I disagree on a pretty fundamental issue in terms of the Methodist church and the issue of same-sex marriage and, and what God thinks about that. And so we had a, a very cordial and friendly back-and-forth dialogue. And I've put the links there to that, so you can check that out if you're interested, if you want to uh, explore a little further on these issues. And then at the bottom link is a forum that I participated in here in town with some other Methodists uh, about that particular issue and, and the things involved. But what I want to turn your attention to is page five in your workbook. So go ahead and turn there. And right at the beginning... What we want to emphasize, when Chris and I were talking about this course and, and how we wanted to do it, we've never t taught this. If you've taken some of the other courses I've taught here over the past three, four, five years, they're all courses that we've taught multiple times, either at Good Shepherd or I've taught them elsewhere. And, and so it, it kind of knows how it's going to go. But this was, this was blank slate. Uh, we, we got to sit and say, okay, what do we want to discuss? What do we want to cover? How do we want to approach this? And the thing that he and I both agreed on very strongly was that we don't want to just tell you what to think about sex. There are enough people out there telling people what they need to think about sex and what they need to do about sex and what they need to believe about sex. We don't want to do that because that's not really a model of discipleship. Rather, what we want to do is teach you how to think about sex because that's what's sorely lacking in this world are Christians who can filter everything in society, whether it's issues of sex, whether it's issues of politics, whether it's issues of poverty, social justice, racial issues, any issue that we face as believers, it's better to have 10 people that know how to think through those issues than 100 people just parroting what their favorite preacher or author has said. And so that's more than anything of this course is, is to give you the background tools the ability to think through all of the issues 
related to human sexuality. Issues of marriage, issues of divorce, issues of same-sex ethics, um, you know, the, the, all of the, the trivialization that our culture has made of sexuality and the lack of it among churches, or at least many churches, the, the lack of a desire to talk about, to discuss. It's very rare that you'll find churches that will openly preach and teach regularly on human sexuality, which is odd because it is the center of, of who we are. We, male and female, God created us in his image, and, and it's, a, it's a very core part of who we are. But yet it's, it's almost a no-win for many preachers because whatever we say is going to draw criticism or, or critiques or flat-out uh, protests from somebody. So what we're going to do over these weeks is sort of navigate you through the issues. It's important. Look at the quote at the top of page 5 in the, in the box. This is a quote from John Stott in his little ethics book called Issues Facing Christians Today. And John Stott, when he talks, he's... He, he was always worth listening to. When he says something, I listen, even if I end up disagreeing. He's probably one of my spiritual heroes of the 20th century, at least. And he says, conscientious disciples of Jesus know that Christian action is impossible without Christian thought, and they resist the temptation to take shortcuts. That's what this course is going to help you hopefully do, is resist the temptation to take shortcuts, resist the temptation to proof text, and think through the issue as a whole. Proof texting is when someone says, well, what does the Bible say about X? And so they turn in a concordance, and they find the word, and they look up a Bible verse, and they read the verse, and they compile a list, and they say, well, this is what the Bible says. That's called proof texting. The, it's popular because it's easy. Anybody can do it if you have a concordance. And now on your phone, if you have a Bible app, you can do it. Um, if you, can, you can just put the verses, here they are, the problem is proof texting rarely works, your way, works its way through the path of how the biblical authors got to the position that they arrive at. It doesn't synthesize things the way they should be. It just says, here are the verses, no context, no nothing. And so as a result, you get people thinking that, for example, the only reason that Christians oppose, uh, many Christians oppose same-sex marriage is because of something that it says in Leviticus, when in fact, that's not at all the reason why Christians feel that way. And so we're going to look at that in a number of issues. Christians think, well, Jesus said something about divorce, and so that, that's what Christians all believe, without realizing that Paul actually extrapolated and expanded upon what Jesus said a little bit later, and that filter, filters into our views on that particular issue. So it's, it's really, that's more than anything, you know, if I'm, sounds like I'm beating a dead horse, it's because it, it hasn't been beaten enough, is we need to be a church and a culture of people that can think through whatever issues we face. Because while the issues will change from generation to generation, the foundation upon which we're standing and the filter through which we look at those issues doesn't. That remains. So that's what we're doing. This is, a, this is an ethics course, a sexual ethics course. But if that doesn't sound very uh, enticing, then this is, you can just say, we're just getting together and talking about sex. Whichever one makes you more excited, pun intended. So the first thing we are going to talk about or note is the separation of church and sex. We all have heard the separation of church and state. 
And there are people that think, oh, it's a myth, and people that think, no, it's how it should be. And, and regardless of that issue, there, there has been a separation of church and sex for going on 18, 1900 years or so. And instead of tracing the history of how that happened, um, we want to acknowledge it. I've given you some points in the, the quotations on this page and the next one. We're going to look at a brief little snippet of how it happened. But look at the bottom of page five, this quote by Marianne Mayo, Christian counselor. This is, a really, this is one that I wanted to start this off with. She says, God does not have a problem with our sensuousness, but we do. He knows we have the capability to experience pleasure with our bodies responsibly and morally within his guidelines. We're the ones who doubt it. The church must confront and deal with that doubt. The church must confront and deal with the fact that the church has, in general and overall, chosen not to confront or deal with issues of sexuality other than maybe a yearly or a semi-annual sermon on what not to do. And, and you don't see the celebration of human sexuality in most churches. Everything I say will be a generalization to some point. But in most churches, you don't see the celebration of sexuality that you see in the pages of Scripture. And instead, Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, particularly evangelical Christians in North America, are known for what we believe you shouldn't do regarding sex, rather than what we believe sex is and, and how it should be enjoyed and celebrated. Well, where did this separation come from? On page six. For many in the early church, first you know, two, three centuries, the default worldview from which they came was heavily influenced by Hellenistic forms of dualism. Dualism. Now, the early Christians, the church started out as all Jewish. And, and the Jews had a very healthy view of sexuality, and still do. It was never this dichotomy between sexuality and spirituality that wasn't really as, as prevalent among the Jews as it was among those coming from Greco-Roman backgrounds. Well, many of the early Christians and many of the early church fathers came from those Greco-Roman backgrounds. They came from belief systems that taught basically, and, and it's amazing how this has infl infiltrated the church, and continues to infiltrate the church, that there were two realms. There was the spiritual and the heavenly and the immaterial realm. Sometimes people call this the Platonic ideal, or, or you know, this, this is where the realm of the soul and the spirit was all up in, you know, it's, it was ethereal, it was immaterial, it was, it was where true things really existed, and it was godly and holy and pure. But then you had the earthly realm, the physical, the earthly, or the material realm, and that's where we lived, and that's where things were bad and sinful and corrupt. And the goal was, in, in most Greco-Roman forms of philosophy or religion, the goal was to one day free yourself from the shackles of this world, the, the shell of your body that was decaying and dying and, and, and sinful and dirty and corrupt, would one day uh, be done away with and your spirit could fly free. It could fly. I'll fly away one day. That's made its way into Christian thought. But that was, that's, that's completely pagan. That is 100% pagan. The idea that earthly is bad, material is sinful, the flesh is corrupt, and the true goodness, the true things that matter, what God really wants is us 
in, in, in to be caught up in the spiritual, the immaterial, the ethereal. That's entirely from Plato and not at all from Moses. In other words, it's not what Christians believed at the very beginning, but as the church became more influenced by Greco-Roman philosophy and figures like Augustine, the greatest uh, theologian in the history of the early church, well, Augustine came out of a pagan background, and not just one that believed in, in dualism and taught it, but also Augustine was an incredibly sexually immoral young man. He was, I mean, he did it all. And so when he became a Christian... He saw his old life, and he saw the sins, and he went in the other direction completely. You know how the most ardent anti-smokers are people who used to smoke, right? If you've, if you've given up processed meat and red meat or something, you are the most anti-that thing of anybody. If you've gone gluten-free, you're the biggest advocate of gluten-free because you've seen what it's done for your life, and everybody should embrace it. It's that same, it's just a normal tendency, well, Augustine did that. He gravitated so far away from his pagan, sexually active, and moral lifestyle that he could not separate in his mind, he could not work out in his mind that sex, that, that, that dirty, sweaty, earthly, smelly, sensuous, physical act, how can that in any way be holy? How can that be something that a God who is holy and who exists in the heavens how could that ever be something that he could look on with anything but disgust? So there was this view, even, even within marriage, Christians thought that sex was still a tolerated evil. And as long as you were doing it for procreation, then that mitigated, that offset the immorality of it. And so it was seen as, you know, Augustine even proposed that that's how original sin was passed on. It was through the actual sex act. So this, this came into church history and church thinking, and there's a quote by Deb Hirsch uh, that you can look at on that page, but it, it infiltrated the church. It, it found its way into Christian thinking, and it has stayed largely to this day. Passages, these, these are some biblical examples. You think, well, why would anybody believe this? Well, they read passages like Colossians 3.1. Since you then have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. That sounds dualistic. Or 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he, is, what does, what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. That sounds like dualism. Or Jude, Jesus' half-brother, Jude. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring to you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt, snatch others from the fire, and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So if you come to the Bible and pick up your New Testament and start reading it, you read passages like this, and if you come from a background that says, yeah, you know, the heavenly and the spiritual, that's the real stuff, and the earthly is kind of the, you know, that's the lesser stuff, or it's bad, or it's dirty, or whatever, this would seem to play right into that. But the problem was, the New Testament is only 23% of the Bible, 
the rest of the Bible, the Bible that the people who are writing the New Testament read was the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is a massive celebration of the physicality and the created order that God created. And the Old Testament contains an entire uh, worldview that completely negates Greco-Roman dualism. Because the goal in the Old Testament was not that I'll die and my soul will fly, fly free to heaven one day. That's not what the Jews looked for. That's not what their hope was for. Their hope was, I'll die, my soul will go somewhere, don't really know where yet, it, God will take care of it, and then when he's ready, he's going to come back and he's going to put to right everything that went wrong in this world, including giving me my body back and putting my soul back in it on a renewed and a purified earth to live forever in his presence. That was the hope. That was the Judeo-Christian hope of, of, of the end. The, the passages in the New Testament, when you see things like world and flesh or worldly or earthly, those terms, those Greek terms that are used, they are used from a background of Hebraic thought. They're used from the background of Judaism from which they come, from which all of the authors of the New Testament came, and they refer to the fallenness of creation, not its physicality. When Paul talks about the flesh, and he uses the Greek term sarx, S-A-R-X, and it means the flesh. Some NIV will translate it as the sin nature. Sometimes he'll translate it as the flesh. He's not, he doesn't mean the material flesh. He's using it as a cipher, as a theological technical term for that part of our humanity that is in ongoing rebellion against God that will one day be done away with so that our true humanity in its earthliness, in its createdness, can live the way God intended us to live and, and can live in God's presence forever. So that's one thing to keep in mind as you read the New Testament and you start to read passages that seem to head in a dualistic way. That's not what the authors of the New Testament were, were thinking when they were writing those words. When, they th when, they, when the author of 1 John talks about do not love the world, well, cosmos in John's gospel, the way that's used, if you trace the way it's used in the gospel and then you trace the way it's used in the epistles that are attributed to him, the word is used to describe that part of the creation that is in sinful rebellion against God. But John flat out says, for God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son, the cosmos, the world. So God doesn't see the world as inherently unlovable or irredeemable. Just the opposite, if you read John's gospel, he came to redeem, to save the world from what it had become due to sinfulness. And so we see this, um, <clears throat> we see this as it kind of reaches into every aspect of, of theology and, and every aspect of, of creation and who we are. There's this tension that the Bible reveals. Jesus mentions it, and we're going to look at it on page 7 in your workbook. When Jesus is asked an ethical question, a question about sexual ethics, in fact, he takes his readers, or his listeners at this point, I should say, he takes the listeners, his audience, he takes them back to their scriptures. He takes them back to the beginning. Page 7, Matthew chapter 19. And this is in the other, this is in Mark as well, and there's a, a, a similar passage in Luke. A lot of the material in the Gospels, especially the first three, 
somewhat overlap and, and take Bible for the rest of us if you want to know why that is the case. But in Matthew, we, we find the account, and that's the one we're going to look at. <clears throat> in Matthew 19, some Pharisees came to him, to Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female? He said, and said, for this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So that's a quote. He just put together two quotes, one from Genesis 1 and one from Genesis 2. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Well, then they respond, because they're ready. They're religious experts. They know the text. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, they're thinking of a passage in Deuteronomy that we'll look at later that allowed for divorce and said, if you're going to divorce, this is what happens, this is how you do it. Jesus replied, verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Now, that one little verse by Jesus has monumental significance for how we read and interpret the Bible. I mean, it is, it is of cosmic significance what Jesus said in that one little, almost like aside to comment to these uh, religious leaders that were testing him. Moses permitted you to divorce because of your hardness of hearts, but it wasn't that way from the beginning. Here, what we see, Jesus is recognizing what theologians and biblical scholars will call a hermeneutical trajectory. That's a fun word to throw out at a party if you want everybody to just walk away from you. Hermeneutical trajectory. Now, what does it mean? Well, hermeneutic is just how you read and study Scripture. Everyone has a hermeneutic. Everyone, that, that's just, it's fancy word for Bible study. How you read and study and apply Scripture is your hermeneutic. And what Jesus is recognizing, what Jesus is saying in this, is there is a hermeneutical trajectory. There's an overarching path that we are traveling through Scripture from beginning to end. And that there are things in Scripture that are in Scripture because of things that happened earlier. And those things in Scripture aren't always necessarily universal or permanent. And he gives a specific example here of Moses and his command on divorce and, and that whole section of the, the law. And he says, no, 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 guys, listen, yeah, Moses allowed for it, you know, they're, because they're thinking by the time Deuteronomy, that's the verse that they're working, looking at. He says, but that's not how it was from the beginning. Go back further. Go back to the original intent. And what does it say? And then he links two pass a passage from Genesis 1 and a passage from Genesis 2, showing that in Jesus' mind, at least, they were not two separate creation accounts. They were one account that had been written in an ancient Near East convention that makes perfect sense to the readers then, but that puzzles readers now because they want to try to make all the details fit. Jesus, uh, he shows that, he, to fill in the blank on your paragraph, he basically says sin has distorted God's original desires and Scripture presents a storyline where God is in the process of redeeming and restoring a fallen creation. In that one little statement, Jesus says, is all of this packed into that. that there, is, there was an original intent for creation, and then sin entered the picture. Hearts became hardened, and God 
made allowance for that. But now in Jesus, he has come to point people back to that original. The time of God's giving the law that would guide the people of Israel up until the arrival of Messiah, that time was drawing to its close. And the new covenant that Jesus had uh, come to inaugurate and to bring into effect what he calls the kingdom of God, that was now arriving on the scene. And so they were in this interim period. And the ethics of the kingdom were a lot more like the ethics of the very beginning than they were the ethics of later in Israel's history. So Jesus would make all these statements. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And if you look at those, every single one of those, you've heard it said, but I say to you, antitheses is what they're called. Every single one of those, if you look at what Jesus is saying, it actually points back to the, intent, the original intent and the spirit of the law as God gave it. The spirit of the law that God wanted to be kept, not the least common denominator. So when Jesus said things like the two greatest commandments, love God, love your neighbor, those were both from the law. One was from Leviticus, one was from Deuteronomy. He wasn't making it up. He was pointing people back to what the original intent was. And that's the story we live in. We don't live in the dualistic world of the, the Greco-Roman, the pagan religions. We live in the story where God created a good creation, including sexuality, and that good creation became spoiled. And that spoiling is what Jesus came to restore or to, 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 to overcome, to reverse, to undo and we know that spoiling as sin and death, and that's exactly what Jesus came to conquer, sin and death. And we are in the period where he has, began, he has begun to conquer it, and he will conclude at his return when it will be completely eradicated. World War II, when the Allies landed, D-Day, that was pretty much the war was over. I mean, everybody celebrated across Europe, the Allies have landed. Well, there still was a lot of war to happen. They still had to go save Private Ryan, right? But the battle, the war, everybody could see where it was headed, even though there was some mopping up that had to be done. And then VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, was when it was finally, truly, completely done. Well, that's kind of how we live. We live in that period of between D-Day and VE Day. So our sexual ethic is going to be an ethic of the kingdom, what it will eventually be like. What we hope it to be like one day, we're to model that now. Just as the allies and their armies marching across Europe were to enact, were to bring about freedom for the people as they encounter them, as they push the forces, the Nazi forces back. That's what our sexual ethic is to do, is to shine God's light, to shine the light of what was intended by the Creator into the situation where the creation itself has gone wrong and, and, and push back the darkness. And the darkness is not going to give up without a fight. And our ethic will be seen as very strange and very odd. But it's because we are, we are putting two different uh, views of what it means to be human up against one another. There's the view of the image of God, and there's the view of whatever humanity has decided it wants to do. And those two come in conflict. So go back to the beginning. 
On page 7, Genesis 1.26, look what it says. Then God said, this is back in Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make human, and I've, I've, this is my translation. Um, different passages will say man, mankind, humankind. The word's Adam, and in Genesis 1, it just means human. It's, it's, it's gender plural, as we'll see here. Let us, make, uh, let us make human in our image according to our likeness, and he will rule over the fish of the sea and over the flying creatures of the sky and over the livestock and over all the land and over all the small animals in the land. Verse 27, this is the first poem in the Bible, very first poem ever. So God created human in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Look at, this, look at the structure of this. I've put it on your page like this for a reason. It's a tripartite poem. This is Hebrew is either bipartite or tripartite. I mean, it has two lines or it has three lines. If it has three lines, they, each one complements and fills out and gives a different aspect of what it's saying. So it's saying the same thing in three slightly different ways. God created human in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So if you laid everything out, each element in each line, you've got God, you've got creating, you've got human, and you've got image of God. In the second one, the image of God, and in the third one, that image of God is gone, and it's replaced with male and female. And what this lets us know is, in this poem, in this verse, this is, this is screaming out, male and female is what it means to be human in the image of God. That humanity is not complete if it's lacking male or female. That we are, we are, we are a two-sex uh, part of creation. And now this is before the fall, this is before sin, this is before any of that, but yet male and female together are the image bearers of God. Both of them, they're both called Adam, male and female. They're both created together. They're, they're on equal footing, and they both reflect the image of God. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the land and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the flying creatures of the sky, over all the creatures swarming over the land. Be fruitful and multiply sounds nice because we've been in church a long time. But it means go have a lot of sex and make a lot of babies. That's what it means. Fruitfulness is an image of human sexuality. You know, Hebrew doesn't have a word for semen. It has the word seed. Every time you see the word seed in the Bible, the context will determine whether it's talking about literal seed that you put in the ground or a guy's seed that he puts in the woman. That's, that's how it was broken down. The image of, of, of being fruitful, of, of agricultural, um, pastoral imagery is everywhere when they think about the sex act. And we'll see later uh, in coming weeks how that got distorted as well. But we see this. God's first, think about that, the first command, the first command that God gave them after he blessed them, get it on. <laughs> you can hear Marvin Gaye playing in the background. Let's get it on. That's the first command that he gave the first man and woman. So when people somehow have imbibed the idea that sex and, and, and theology or sex and spirituality are two you know, distinct things, they have not read their Old Testament. The idea that sex is in any way inherently unholy, not in my Bible, not in Jesus' Bible, it's the first thing God told humanity to do. There's a reason why our culture is preoccupied by sexuality. There's a reason why sex 
pornographic websites count for probably half of the internet traffic. I don't know if that's true or not, but it probably is. Um, there's a reason that the the sex industry is a multi-billion dollar industry, and it's always been, in effect, the world's oldest profession, right? That's That's a phrase used to describe what? Prostitution. Sexuality is intrinsic to who we are, and it's always been that way. That's not something that we should deny as Christians. That's something that we should accept because verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was exceedingly good. Tov ma'ov in Hebrew. It was exceedingly good. It was incredibly good, including this male and female and their sexuality. Genesis 2 then gives us a closer look at the events of Genesis 1 involving this first particular male and female. And we read that now Yahweh God, and Yahweh is just, that's his name. It's translated in English Bibles as the Lord, but it's, it's I am who I am. Um, Yahweh God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And Yahweh God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the midst of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. I mentioned all that passage for a reason. That's going to come into play next week. Those mentions of things like gold and resin and precious stones and river and garden and all of that stuff. So just that's, that needs to be in your mind when you think of where we came from, all of this imagery. Yahweh God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For When you eat of it, you will surely die. Yahweh God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a deliverer suitable for him. Now, every Bible translation blows it here because they say something like helpmate, helper, helpmeet, which is even worse. That word is azer, E-Z-E-R, azer. And it's a term, it means one who comes along and rescues. Here's the thing, other than this, it's only ever used to describe God in relationship to Israel. God is the Azer in relationship to Israel. So it's like, that's why I think it's such a bad translation, because it's like calling God Israel's helpmate. That's ridiculous. No, if anything, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exalted term. So ladies, chin up. You can say, hey, this is, yeah, yes. We're the Azer, we're the deliverer. Why? Because God is bringing a suitable Azer to come and redeem or rescue the situation in which the man finds himself. While things are still good. This is before sin. So, God calls the man, uh, oh, excuse me, uh, now Yahweh God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave name to all the livestock, the birds of the air, all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, the man, no suitable Azer, deliverer, was to be found. So Yahweh God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took some of the man's side. It, it says, you know, a rib. 
Uh, some of the ancient versions say a rib, like the Greek and everything. But the Hebrew is side, part of his side, from his side. It's the same part where the ark, the door of the ark was placed later in Genesis. So, you know, don't, don't, don't pass, don't forward uh, email, website, the articles that talk about how it's been scientifically proven that men have one less rib than women, and that shows that the Bible's true. Just don't do that. Um, it's, it doesn't say. It, it's part of his side, okay? And, and the medieval rabbis read all kinds of stuff into that. They saw, oh, not from his head above him, not from his feet below him, but from his side so that he could be by his heart. And he could, There's all kinds of things you could do with that, but that's what it says. So, God, uh, while he was sleeping, he took some of the man's side, closed the place up with flesh. Then Yahweh God crafted a woman, literally in Hebrew it's built a woman, from the side he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, which is woman, for she was taken out of Ish, which is man. So woman is taken from man, so that's where the name comes. But the, uh, and, and then he goes on to say, it's not done, verse 24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and in the old King James says cleave to, or I think New American Standard says cleave to, which is weird because cleave means to, like a meat cleaver doesn't join things together, right? It cuts them in half. It's a weird English word that can mean two exact opposite things, but cleave apparently can either mean join together or cut in half. So for that reason, in Bible translation, it's not a very good word to use anymore in the English language. But the word that's used, that's translated as cleave or be joined to, or NIV, I think, says be united to, is, is the word for to glue or to weld. If you weld two pieces of metal or if you glue something together, it's, it's a bond that is not meant to be broken. It's specifically created to, to, to fuse the two things together. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be glued to his wife, be welded to his wife, be fused to his wife, and they will be, as if that's not enough, and they will become one flesh. Something entirely new is happening when the man and the woman come together. Is there, something's taking place. A new thing is being created. The closest physical relationship you can have is with your parents. I mean, you literally came out of them. They, 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 it's, they can't get more closer than that except this one. Because this one, unlike the parent relationship, is mutual. This is one that both parties enter into, and this is one that involves the sexual act. And that's something that not even the closeness of mother and father to their son or daughter can come close to. So when you're, when you're joining together, you are, are symbolically, theologically, biologically, however you want to categorize it, it's the coming together and the creating of something new that's meant to be permanent. That's what the sex act was meant to do. That's, that's the difference between the Christian storyline and the cultural storyline. The cultural storyline, the sex act, is something you do to pass on your seed to the next generation to make more of you so they can have more sex and make more of them. For what reason? We don't know. People just guess there's some kind of drive. There's this, this, this drive for life. There's this desire to pass on. I mean, that's when biologists stop being biologists and they start playing metaphysics, but they don't know. Richard Dawkins doesn't know. He can tell you how evolutionary theory works, but he can't tell you anything about why. He doesn't even believe in an overall purpose for why. So that's where you have to be really careful when you're listening to people start like 
on any science channel. Discover. I love National Geographic. I love History Channel. I love science documentaries. I love all of that stuff. But you have to listen for when they stop being scientists and start becoming theologians or metaphysicians or philosophers because that's when they've stepped out of their realm of expertise and you're free to not listen to them, at least authoritatively. Um, the, the world pagan culture, it says, sex is the thing you do to pass on the species. And so therefore, we come from this long evolutionary period where the, the male wants to spread his seed as far as he can, raise up as many offspring as he can, but the woman, since she has to bear the child, wants to nurture and to hold and to try to keep the male from wandering to other females, and then they look at the behavior of apes, primates, and animals, and this and that. That's one way of looking at sex. That's the way the world looks at it. The other way is to look at it from the vantage point of God's creation. That whatever the physical mechanisms were for human life coming onto the scene, however evolution played into this whole thing of who we are, at some point there was a special human people. Whether it was Adam and Eve when they were actual people or whether they were a collective and this is symbolic of that or whatever. That's, that's Bible and science. Check out that DVD for all of that stuff. But for the question here, the, the Christian worldview from which Jesus comes is that there was a reason for the man and the woman joining together. And it was to create a new permanent relationship for the purpose of mutual enjoyment with one another and also to raise up offspring and to carry on that image of God, male and female, that's to be born. So verse, uh, or at the bottom of your page, man and woman in the garden, before the fall, before centered into the picture, man and woman in the garden, one is they were equal. The idea of, of, you know, men were created higher up and then women after them, so women are inferior. Not, no, before the story of Adam and Eve comes the story of the poem of Genesis 1, male and female, imago Dei, image of God. So before sin enters the picture, man and woman are equal from his side, not from his feet. They're perfectly suited for each other. Out of all the biological life forms on this earth, there was only one that was perfectly suited to be the Azer, to be the deliverer, to, to rescue the man from this state of it not being good. It's the only thing in the creation account that God says is not good. Even after he said everything is good, everything's great, oh, one thing that's not good, that this man is alone. And that tells you something about the foundational issue of the human condition and the desire that we all have deep down, whether it's ever expressed in romantic sexuality or whether it's expressed in platonic friendship, there's a desire to know and to be known. There's a desire to be rescued from loneliness. There's a desire to have this fellowship and intimacy and community, whether it works itself out sexually or whether it's channeled in another direction, as Jesus allowed for, which we'll see later. They were one flesh united. The coming together of male and female created something that was new. There were two fleshes there. There were two, I mean, the word's literally flesh, like meat, like what you eat, what we're made of. There were two. Now there's one when they come together in this act. They were fruitful, or they were to be fruitful. God commanded them, be fruitful. It's an, it's an imagery of abundance. There's a reason that the Song of Songs, which we'll look at maybe next week or the week after, spends so much of its ink devoted to garden imagery and, and, and fruitfulness. There's a reason for that. We'll see what that is later. They were naked. The passage ends. 
Genesis 2, the last verse ends with they were naked. The man and the woman were naked. They didn't need clothes. They were in a nice Mediterranean climate for one. Uh, they were in the garden that God had prepared. And they were, they were completely, there, there's a theological element to that nakedness as well. Because in scripture, nakedness will come to be associated with shame or with hiding. But yet in the beginning, they were naked and they were unashamed. They were unashamed. This is the state that God created male and female to exist in, in his creation. Not pie in the sky, ethereal spirits floating in the heavens, but man and woman, sexually active, in the garden, naked, unashamed, having children, living out earthly pleasures. There's nothing wrong with any of those things until things go south in the very next chapter. But as we see on the next page in your book, is that marriage and physical sex between the man and the woman, they were God's idea from the beginning. You, you can't get sexier than God. <laughs> you can't out-sexy God. You can never make God blush. Ever. I had an ethics professor in seminary, Dr. Catherine Crager. She was one of the early evangelical feminists, meaning she believed in a lot of the good ideas of feminism and rejected a lot of the bad baggage that came along with it. And she also was a pioneer in writing about theology of sexuality and human sexual ethics. And she came up with, a, she wrote a sexual ethics class that was the most popular class on campus because they only offered it once every three years. And when she taught it, it was packed. There were like hundreds of us in a big auditorium. And she developed the class because she said she got tired of hearing that pastors that were trained at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, that were experts in handling the Word of God and teaching people what it said, she got tired of hearing that when they had to do marriage counseling, they would get embarrassed or they would get uncomfortable or they would blush. And she said, that's inexcusable. She said, as a pastor, as a teacher, you should be able to, somebody should be able to come into your office and tell you the most sordid sexual sin that they're entangled with, and you not bat an eye. Because if you do, and if they for that one split second feel the shame that that engenders, that they will leave your office and they may never come back again. And, and they may never receive the healing that the Holy Spirit has for them through your ministry. And it was like, I mean, that was, that hit, hit us like a ton of bricks. And so for the rest of the semester, she said, I'm going to desensitize you to talking about sex. And she was like in her 70s. This is a little old lady, you know, in white hair in the mid-70s, and she was just as spry as can be. And she, I, she, was, she was hilarious. But, you know, just a little, imagine a little old lady. All right, today's topic, oral sex. And everybody's like, what? Seminarians, they came straight from homeschool to private Christian college to seminary. Oh, blew their minds. All us public school kids were like, yeah. But... The point of it was, she was doing exactly what the church needs, which is taking away the shame and the stigma and the uncomfortableness of talking about sex and putting it back into its place, not jokes and innuendo and crudeness and humor, but putting into its place a real, authentic, raw uh, view of human sexuality for the purpose of being able to lead people back to God's original intent in the garden. In Genesis 3, so marriage uh, between the man and the woman and physical sex was God's idea, but in Genesis 3, sin enters the picture and immediately distorts the good creation. 
immediately distorts the good creation. You can read in Genesis 3, uh, the serpent was more crafty, and that's a word play on the word naked that was in the previous um, verse. But the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. God never said you must not touch it. This is something that she added. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, good, pleasing to the eye, and desirable, those become key terms for describing sexual sin and lust and and all of that. Uh, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. How many of you knew that Adam was standing right there the entire time? If you have an old RSV translation that came out in the mid-1950s, 40s, uh, it, it left that sentence out. The RSV completely, for some reason, we don't even know, left out the who was with her. So you get the idea that, that the serpent came and approached Eve while she was by herself. Now, Eve wasn't there when God gave the command about the tree in the garden. She would have had to have learned it from Adam. The serpent comes in, says, no, God didn't really say that. That was the moment where Adam was supposed to do what he was put on the earth to do, to rule over and to subject the serpent to his judgment. That was when he was supposed to step in and to have dominion over the beasts of the field. That's when he was supposed to subdue this part of creation that was for some reason, we don't know why, we're never told why, for some reason this particular aspect of creation was against God and against his plans. And that's what he was put in the garden to work and to take care of and to guard it from. And what does he do? Nothing. Stands right there, lets the serpent come between the most intimate and personal relationship imaginable, and then he goes along with her. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Immediately now, post-sin, after the fall, that's what this verse is in Christian theology. This is called the fall is when, when their eyes were opened and immediately, now good and evil were no longer theoretical concepts. Now they knew good and evil. Before they had just known good. Now they knew good and evil. Why? Because they had experienced evil. They had, they had become part of the realm of evil through their actions. Their eyes were opened, and, and the, the reaction of someone whose eyes are opened and the, know, the knowledge of good and the experiential knowledge of evil now, they see their nakedness, and rather seeing it as a gift, rather than seeing it as joyful, their immediate thought is shame. And it becomes, that becomes endemic among human culture, especially biblical culture, where the most shameful thing you can do to someone is strip them naked. That's why Jesus was crucified naked. He didn't have the little white cloth wrapped around him that you see at the Easter play, although thankfully they include that at Easter plays. But you were stripped naked. A woman who was accused of adultery or who was found guilty of adultery before the biblical prohibitions for um, stoning and killing, but in other cultures, would be stripped naked. And people would throw refuse and trash at her. It was just this way of just to heap shame on someone. That's what it was about. It was about shaming the person. 
So this widespread equivocation in ancient cultures between nakedness and shame has been there from the beginning. And it's, and it's, 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 it's just part of who we are. And, and it's what gets twisted and distorted, and pretty soon people start to glory in that shame and rebel and say, well, we're not going to treat it as shameful anymore. We're going to embrace it and celebrate it. But they do it without seeing it through the eyes of God without putting it in the parameters that God wants it to be put in. And so then you get this proud sexual immorality that you see play out through the rest of the chapters of Genesis, starting with a guy named Lamech in the couple of chapters from here, first guy to take two wives. Um, So you see that things weren't the way they were supposed to be, and there's ramifications for it. Um, Verse 8 Then the man and his wife heard the sound of Yahweh God as he was going about in the garden in the wind of the day, and they hid from Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man, in his manliness, said, the woman you put here... With me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. That was brilliant. Not only did he blame the woman, he blamed God as well. The woman you gave me, right? Immediately you see what sin starts to do, and that's a whole other sermon that we don't have time to get to. But So verse 13, then Yahweh God said to the woman, turns to her, what have you done? The woman said, the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. So she passes the buck as well, only she only has the serpent to blame. So God turns to the serpent. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. That's translated as offspring, but that's another metaphorical use of the word seed. Between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head, though you may crush his heel. This is the first promise of the gospel. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. This is the promise that God makes as soon as sin enters the picture, that the seed of the woman, meaning the offspring of the woman, meaning all of us, is going to always live at enmity with the seed of the serpent, meaning the forces of darkness, the forces of evil, the offspring of Satan. Uh, And there's going to be enmity. There's going to be hostility. And in the end, though, The seed of the woman, one of the seed of the woman, is going to crush the head of the serpent. And in the process, his own heel will be crushed. That's the promise of, that's the very beginning promise of the gospel. So so everything that will unfold from the rest of the Bible builds on this. And the whole goal of everything in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is that Jesus is the one. He's the seed of the woman, the ultimate seed of the woman, who comes to crush the head of the serpent in order to put right what went wrong in the garden. This is the overall storyline. You know, we, we say this is a class where we're going to talk about sex, and yeah, we are, but you can't talk about sex without talking about theology. Otherwise, you just, you're no better than anybody else, any tabloid magazine or any, you know, issue of Cosmo or anything. You read letters to whatever, Playboy, fill in the blanks. That's all just talking about sex without the foundation of what sex is and what it was meant to be and why, why it is right now the way it is. So then the, uh, he turns to the man, excuse me, turns to the woman. He said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. The pain you, in pain, you will give birth to children. 
Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Patriarchy, male ruling over female, is a result, a consequence of sin's entry into the world. God is saying, I'm looking ahead, I'm seeing how this is playing out, and this is going to be the reality from now on. And it immediately starts happening throughout the pages of the Bible. What was a relationship of equals now becomes a relationship of subservience. And, and, but even through that, and, and what was a joy of bringing children into the earth has now become a struggle, and there's going to become pain, and there's going to become death with it. But even through that, God is going to ultimately redeem the woman as he'll redeem the man as well. But that line, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you, I underline that for a reason because that is going to be the central point, the central, the key line, I would suggest, that unlocks the entire meaning of the book of the Song of Songs, which we'll get to later. But anyway, he goes on and and the rest of it plays out. I just want to point out Biblical Conclusions Regarding Sex, page 10. This is, this is the, the storyline that we're in as Christians. Sex between a man and a woman is part of God's good creation. Be fruitful and multiply. Sin has distorted and disordered all of God's good creation. Thus, sin has distorted and disordered sex between man and woman. That's huge. Just If you didn't get anything else but that, it'd be enough. That is huge in how we look at our culture today. We see that the way things are are not the way that they're supposed to be. And it's the same thing Jesus told the questioners when they came to him asking him about divorce. He said the way things are, even in Scripture, are not the way they're supposed to be because other stuff happened earlier in Scripture. And so he's teaching them to read it canonically, read the full story, get the hermeneutical trajectory, see what God's doing in the world and where he's taking things before you determine your ethic. We'll see how that plays out in the coming weeks. But the fourth point, Jesus came to defeat sin, to transform the man and the woman. He came to defeat sin. He came to put back right what went wrong in the garden, to crush the head of the serpent, to usher in the kingdom of God, to transform the lives of his people. Jesus didn't come just to forgive sin. He came to forgive sin and to instill in us his own ability to overcome sin and to walk in victory over sin. He came to give us that. And so insofar as we unite with him, insofar as we walk with him, insofar as he is in us and we are in him, that odd word picture of how, how can a person be in me, but yet I be in them. All of these images that the New Testament uses is basically saying Jesus came to live and dwell within us, and we live and dwell within him, and thus we are to walk in the newness of life that he came to bring. So then, uh, Jesus, therefore, came to redeem and restore true, holy, vibrant sexuality. Because that's part of what it means. You can't redeem man and woman without redeeming sex. You can't rescue man and woman without rescuing sex. Sex is intrinsic to who we are. So you can't have a salvation that doesn't save sex. 
And Jesus came to do that. And that's even Jesus, who we never for anything we know ever had a sexual relationship, yet we know from Scripture he was a fully human person who experienced all of the temptations, all of the desires that we had. He entered into the story of Adam in order to overcome the enemy that Adam lost to. And then he rose from the dead as the new Adam in order to impart that life to us so that we then could walk in newness of life, including our sexuality. And the New Testament has a lot to say about sexuality and so much more than just what not to do. So the last point, or the last couple of points, Christian marriage is where such redemption and restoration of sex itself happens. And Christian marriage points beyond itself to deeper and greater truths. Sex was always meant to be not just the ends, but the means of a greater end. Sex was not just meant to be um, this experience that you have and it's just between you and the person. It was meant to be this experience that was supposed to give us echoes or shadows or hints or glimpses of the true nature of love and intimacy that's experienced within the Godhead, within Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That relationship, it's like a pale shadow in comparison. It's an earthly glimpse of a heavenly reality. It's a distorted picture. It's just through a lens, very blurry, that we get just just a hint of what it means to have true intimacy, to truly know and to be known. That's what sex is, ultimately. Sex is, you, I mean, just the whole thing of you're naked with someone, your, your flaws, your faults, your bad breath, your stinky pits, you're with someone, and they have those flaws as well. And that's what it is. You, you, you're not supposed to hide. You're supposed to, that, that, that nakedness and unashamedness is intrinsic to what sex is. It's supposed to be that act where you can most fully know and be known. It's the thing that you, it's the one thing that you must freely give that no one can take. It's supposed to be that area where the two become one, spiritually, physically, emotionally, all of this stuff. That's what it's supposed to be. But when we look at what it is, whether in our own lives, if we've you know, if, if our lives have contained forays into cultural sexuality or whether we're just looking at the outside culture, however, wherever we're viewing it from, we see the reality and it's so far below what it was intended to be because this thing called sin entered into the picture. So the, thing, the, the things of like, well, this is just who I am. I'm just a very sexual person. I, I don't, monogamy doesn't really work for me, you know. I'm just, I, I, that's not who I, God created me this way, you know. I was born with this desire to engage in fill-in-the-blank type of sex. That doesn't work in a Christian ethic. That works in a worldly, that makes sense in a worldly ethic. I was, this is how I was born, ergo, this is who I am. In a Christian ethic, everyone is born broken, Everyone is born distorted. For some people, it's their temper. For some people, it's their substance abuse abilities. For some people, it's their sexuality. For some people, it's whatever. Everyone is born broken. And the message of the gospel is so no one should be how they were born. No one should live how God made us. 
Because God made us, he created us into a world that was already distorted by sin. And he desires us within that world to reach out to him, to cry out to him, to recognize that we're hopeless without him so that he then will step into and rescue us from that, transform us, and make in us a new creation. So, Born that way, whether you're talking about same-sex issues, whether you're talking about people with sexual addictions, heterosexual addictions, whether you're talking about monogamy versus non-monogamy, whether you're any, whatever you're talking about, fetishes, any of those kinds of things, our desires are never who we truly are. Our desires are part of this sinful world that we've been, been brought into. And what Jesus tells everyone is you must be born again. Everyone. So born that way, no, born again. That's the goal. That's what we should be. What we see, this is, this, this is what I note whenever I do a wedding service. I've, I've, I've done maybe a dozen or so weddings, and whenever I do one, I always mention this, for the, not just for the couple, but for the people there that don't realize it, is that the Bible begins and ends with marriage celebrations. The, the Eden the first thing that we have is the man and the woman being joined together by God himself. Talk about getting walked down the aisle by dad. Like he's walking Eve right there. And then it ends with the vision of the new Jerusalem, which is said to be the bride coming down from heaven like, one, like a bride adorned for her groom. The, the whole image in Revelation, and it's neat, again, can do the Revelation course if you want to more on this. But at the end of Revelation, John says, hey, come and, come and see this battle that's going to take place. And then when he, or he says, uh, come and see the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And then when he turns and he looks, it's actually the battle, the destruction of all evil. The destruction of all evil and the throwing of Satan into the pit forever and, and the, the, the doing away with of death itself is described as the wedding banquet of the Lamb. In Revelation. And then Jerusalem itself, the new creation, the new Eden, is described as the bride of the Lamb coming down. Heaven coming down to earth. Not us beaming up to heaven forever. New Jerusalem comes down to earth. And the new Jerusalem, when you read through it, lo and behold, it's a giant golden cube. It has all the, the remnants of the Holy of Holies, the middle of the temple, which itself was to be a sign or a replica of Eden. And so there's all this Eden imagery at the end when he sees the New Jerusalem, and there's just gardens, and there's trees, and there's tree of life, and there's a river flowing through it, and there's gold, and there's precious stones, and there's all these things that we just saw in Eden. That's where it's all headed. So it starts with a wedding. It ends with a wedding. That should tell us that marriage and human sexuality and the sex act itself are all part of God's good and holy creation. It's not a distortion. It's not a pagan invention. It's God himself. So this answers questions then. It's like, so why, do, why, don't, why don't we just live together? You know, the average cost of a wedding, 2014, $28,000 was the, av- the average cost. I don't even want to know what Kim and Kanye were paying for their wedding or, or the royal families when they have their weddings. or what Average. $28,000. So why don't we just live together? Why do we need a piece of paper? We love each other. We're, we're married in God's eyes. 
This, this is questions that we have to wrestle with through, through uh, a biblical sexual ethic. Um, what we have to realize, a couple of things. One is a wedding is not, does not equal, is what that sign is. A wedding is not Christian marriage. A wedding is when you celebrate the beginning of what will be Christian marriage. Obviously, I'm speaking for Christians right now. The wedding is the beginning. The wedding's a day. It comes, it goes. You remember half of it, if you're lucky, because you're preoccupied and people are running around. And I mean, wedding, and I love weddings. I love doing weddings. Some pastors, my dad, pastor, hates doing weddings. Uh, I love doing weddings. I think they're great. But it's just a day, and it's gone like that. It's, it's so unimportant. And the fact that we are a culture that focuses everything on the wedding. How many of you, 20 years before you were married, knew what your wedding was going to look like? Most of the women would raise their hand before the guys would raise their hands, at least, typically. Because in our culture, women especially are encouraged to have their perfect wedding. It's, you know, you're told it's the bride's day. Whatever the bride wants, it's her day. You know, it's, it's this cultural thing that has so little to do with what marriage is. It's not like I'm anti-wedding. Jesus wasn't anti-wedding. Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding, and he made booze. Like, he's not against people celebrating weddings. It's what it is. It, it, it's, it's see, that the wedding should just be like the, hey, we're excited for the next 50 years or however long you're allowed to live together. We're excited for everything that's going to happen after this party, but we're inviting you here to celebrate it with us. But there's a reason why you invite people that you care about to weddings, because weddings, Christian marriage seeks to uphold God's original intent as put forth in Genesis and upheld by Jesus. This is what makes Christian marriage different from a civil marriage. Civil marriage can be about whatever you want it to be about. A Christian marriage... Marriage in the church is supposed to be entering into the type of relationship that God wanted us to have from the beginning. And there's even, like, like there's some encouragement along those lines within the Bible in this book that we'll look at later called The Song. But it's supposed to be to uphold God's original intent that Genesis put forward and that Jesus upheld in his discussion on marriage. That's what Christian marriage is supposed to be. So because of that, Christian marriage is different from any other type of marriage, all right? We're having a cultural debate about marriage right now. Don't know if you knew that or not. <laughs> you, we are in a paradigm shift, and marriage and the definition of marriage is a very hot-button issue, and people on both sides are, you know, staunch advocates of their view, and, their, and into this steps Christian marriage, steps Jesus, and says, let me point you to what it's supposed to be before you start arguing about what it needs to be legislated as. Here's what it's supposed to be. Marriage is a public commitment. A public commitment. It's not something done in private. Christian marriage, and this is what if somebody asks you, why do we need to be married? You say, well, civilly you don't need to be married, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you do have to be married if you want to enjoy sexuality in a garden setting like God intended, spiritually speaking. You have to be married because it's a public commitment. The man will leave his mother and father and be joined to the woman. They will become one flesh. It is, it is a, a public thing that's taking place, not something done behind closed doors, not something done just when it's convenient, not something done when nobody's looking or nobody better is looking. It's a public commitment. 
It's a mutual commitment. It's a relationship that's entered into mutually, at least it's supposed to be, where there is a recognition of this is bone of my bone, this is flesh of my flesh. We're coming together and we're, we're coming together as one flesh because we're perfectly suited for one another if we are doing what God wants us to do, being what God wants us to be in this thing called marriage. It's a permanent commitment to becoming one flesh. You, have, you try to take apart something that's glued and you end up ripping off pieces of both sides. It, it, it tears apart. It doesn't just pop apart. It's not, you know, Legos versus glued together Legos. Big difference when you try to separate them. It's supposed to be a permanent commitment. And this is the question that Jesus was getting asked, and it was the debate that he had been brought into by his questioners. But it's supposed to be for life. It's an accountable commitment. This is the big one. This is what's lost in the let's just live together movements. It's supposed to be accountable where your commitment to the other person is, is known and there are certain known things about your relationship because you have become a new family. There's, let me read you this quote, again, by John Stott, page 11. It's worth reading, especially for the benefit of recording here. He says, sexual intimacy is, of course, essentially private, but not the relationship within which it takes place. Did you catch that? The sex is what's private. That's not what needs to be on display. That's not what you need to flaunt out in the open. But the relationship is most definitely public. The status of being a husband or a wife is, is inherently a public thing. So yes, there's privacy. Yes, your sex life is your own business and nobody else's, blah, blah, blah. Sure, but that has nothing to do with marriage or commitment or anything like that. You can read the rest of the quote after that. Um, Let's then, in the remaining time that we have together, let's go back to, on page 12, let's get back to it then. So what about Jesus' questioners then? When they asked him about divorce. Here's, here's where a Christian ethic is so needed. One, because Christians aren't that great at not getting divorced. I mean, we're a little better than non-Christian society. Like some of the people that you read reports that say Christians are just as much prone to divorce as non-Christians. That, that's not true. That's a myth. Statistically, actually, people who do regularly go to church do have lower divorce rates, and it's, 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 incum- it's um, commensurate with how active you are in church, and there's some correlation there. But regardless, still, overall, Christians aren't great at not divorcing. And the question that we get is, Jesus said, I mean, right there, Jesus says, so why is divorce allowed? Why are you going to single out sins like same-sex marriage but not single out divorce? Why is Kim Davis going to not issue marriage certificates in Kentucky to same-sex couples, but she's been married three different times? How's that not hypocritical? Those are fair questions. Those are fair questions that we as Christians have to be ready to answer. So how we think about divorce is, is a case study in how we do Christian sexual ethics in particular. Let's look at what Scripture actually says. Let's look at Deuteronomy, and I've given it to you on page 12. This is the one, there's, there's passages that mention divorce in the Old Testament, but this is, there's only one passage that makes legislation about it. 
In other words, there's only one passage that gives us a law or a rule about divorce, and it's this one. It's Deuteronomy 24.1. And this is what it says. This is, this is what Torah allows. Now, Torah is, is the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai after creation, after sin, after they had been in bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years, and he was bringing them out. He was creating a new society in the midst of a fallen pagan world, which we'll look at in a few weeks, and he gives them a set of laws through Moses that they're to live by to be his people. So one of those laws is found in Deuteronomy 24.1, and it says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, so this is a case, if this happens, verse 2, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of Yahweh. Do not bring sin upon the land Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance. That's the divorce law in the Old Testament. Now you notice that not once is divorce commanded it's not even spoke that if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to her because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and she goes and marries someone, this is presuming that divorce is happening, but it's not commanding that divorce happen. That's the one thing to, to keep in mind. This is, this is because what we see in here is what Torah does. Torah seeks to legislate and mitigate the effects of divorce without endorsing it certainly without commanding it, like Jesus' questioner said. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament that Torah, the legislation that God gave at Sinai, sought to correct and to corral and to mitigate and to put limits on without completely overturning. And there's theological reasons for that, and, and, and different people have different theories, and that's a whole other course in and of itself. But Jesus knew that that's the case because he said, Moses allowed for this because of your hardness of heart. Meaning Torah, these laws that were given, were given because you're sinful people. God gave these laws into a sinful people, and the ethics of Torah on a sinful people like Israel and Egypt and Canaan and anybody else, those ethics will always be below the ethics of the kingdom. And so what Torah seeks to do, what the legislation of the Old Testament seeks to do, is put that lowest common denominator. It seeks to set a limit under which God's people are not to fall. But it doesn't set the the high bar. It seeks to provide the basics. So in this case, this law, and there there was a whole lot of discussion going on about this, This law seeks to mitigate, legislate the effects of divorce. This was talking about when there was a broken covenant. When a covenant had been broken, the result of that was divorce. When a marriage covenant had been broken. Now, there was a whole debate among the rabbis about what it means. If you look up at verse uh, verse 1 of 24, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. I've given you the literal, what the Hebrew literally says, and it says, 
If a man takes a wife and becomes her husband, and if she does not find favor in his eyes, because he finds in her, and it literally says, nakedness of a thing. And that phrase is what's translated as something indecent or something shameful. But So the rabbis always took this as it has something to do with, with shame or sexuality. So there was a, one school of rabbis that said, this is talking about adultery. And if he finds that she's an adulterer, then that's when he can divorce her. Otherwise, no divorce. That school of, of that rabbinic school was called the school of Shammai, S-H-A-M-M-A-I. And Shammai, the school of Shammai, they said divorce only in cases of sexual immorality because that's the something indecent. That's the nakedness of a thing that's being talked about. Another much more liberal uh, school of rabbinic thought was called Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. And Hillel, the rabbis from the school of Hillel says, no, it's, if the emphasis is not on the nakedness of a thing that they find. That's just a word for something he doesn't like. What the emphasis is on is if she doesn't find favor in his eyes. That means Hillel taught you can divorce your wife for any reason. And it became the for any reason clause or for any reason whatsoever. Hillel even flat out says it. You can read it in the Mishnah. He says, it can be something as trivial as not preparing his food right. He can divorce his wife. And in Jewish law, the man could divorce. The woman couldn't divorce. The woman could appeal to the courts to get the man to give her a divorce, but the woman couldn't issue a divorce. So the debate was between Hillel and Shammai, and this was going on during Jesus' day. This was the debate. Hillel says, you can divorce your wife for any reason. Any reason whatsoever. Even a reason that they gave, again, you read the Mishnah information on this, which is ancient Jewish legal commentary. One of the reasons was if he sees somebody he likes better and she loses favor in his eyes. Shammai, on the other hand, says, no, only if there's adultery, sexual indiscretion. The problem with that was the penalty for adultery is already spelled out, and it was capital punishment. For her and the guy. So it doesn't seem like this nakedness of a thing is adultery, but it's not as frivolous as burning the food. It's somewhere in between and probably a lot closer to the adultery side than it is the burnt food, find a better looking lady side. So a lot. Clo- so, so Jesus was definitely at least more on that side. But the point of it is Jesus is entering into or he's being pulled into a debate in his day. He's being pulled into a debate between these two schools of thought. Can you divorce your wife? Look how they ask him. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And NIV translates it for any reason at all. That's the key. That's what they're asking. Can you divorce your wife for any reason? Because they know that if Jesus says yes, then he'll find favor with the Hillel people, but then the Shammai people will turn against him. If he says no... He'll get props from the Shammai people, but the Hillel people will turn against him. So either way he answers, he's in trouble. That happened a lot to Jesus. You know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Either way he answers, he's going to make somebody mad. What does Jesus do? Takes him back to the beginning. Takes them back to Scripture. Says, this is what it should be. Points. He doesn't give them, okay, well, here's the bottom baseline. He says, here are the heights to which you're supposed to ascend. Here's what marriage is supposed to be. So then they come back, second kind, oh, well, then why did Moses command us to divorce? And, he, and, and first of all, Moses didn't command it. Nowhere in here does it say a husband must divorce his wife. 
Nowhere in here does it say that this is what you should do. This is how you should do it. This is a law. This law in Deuteronomy says if someone divorces and she marries someone else and gets either divorced again or widowed, she can't go back to the one who sent her away. And there's reasons for this. Old Testament ethicists think that it had a lot to do with the power structure in the ancient Near East of, of basically turning women into like a volleyball where you go from one to the other and then back to this one, send you away for a while, but then if things don't work out, well, I'll take you back. And, and it was all about cheapening what marriage was supposed to be. In the Old Testament, no, marriage is supposed to be permanent. And if you end it, if you break that covenant, that broken covenant is permanently broken. That was the emphasis of this Deuteronomy passage. But what's, what's bizarre, this is the j- debate Jesus was entering into, the, the Hillel debate versus Shammai. Um, that's on the next page, so don't worry about filling it in yet. What's, what's bizarre about this is, on page 12, the prophets, the Hebrew prophets, they use divorce imagery to describe God's relationship with Israel. If you read Isaiah 50, if you read Jeremiah 3, if you read Malachi 2, when they're talking about divorce... God actually flat out says, I divorced Israel. I wrote you a certificate of divorce and sent you into exile. That's the imagery that God uses, especially in Hosea, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. Shocking imagery. And then even more shocking, those prophets talk about God after Israel's in captivity, after Israel repents, what does God say he'll do? I'll take you back. That was the shocking part of the prophets. Not that God would divorce Israel if they broke the covenant. That's no big deal. Of course he would. That's what you do. Covenant's broken, divorce. What was scandalous about the prophets was God said, I'll take you back. God will do for Israel what the law was not even allowed, the law would not allow a husband to do to a wife. God's grace would extend beyond that. Because Torah law was not the summation of all things ethic and and everything perfect. It was the lowest common denominator. It was the baseline that he was calling his people as a nation to. But he himself had something far greater planned for them in terms of his relationship. But if it was by the time of Jesus, it was seen as if there's indiscretion, if there's something shameful, if it's something just, just not right, then divorce is an option, and it's a perfectly valid option, and it's a righteous option. And that explains Matthew 1.9, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. What did he say he was going to do? Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph was going to do what any upstanding Israelite should have done, which is send, away, send her away quietly. Definitely a shameful thing had been discovered when your fiancé is pregnant and you haven't slept with her. That's a shameful thing. But rather than causing a stink, rather than feeling like, oh, I've got to bring this before the people, he, he was just going to, you know what, just going to do this, send her away quietly. Of course, the angel talks him out of it, thankfully, uh, because he knows that wasn't the case. But... That's the background that Jesus is entering into in this discussion, is that divorce was seen as something that it was, it was a permanent ending of the relationship and, and a point of no return, and, but yet also in the Old Testament you have God saying, but he can still take Israel back because of divorce. So already around divorce, there's some ambiguity. There's some tension within the text when it comes to what God actually is, is all. You know, because God says... In the prophets, you know, I hate divorce. He says it in Malachi. I hate divorce. 
So there's no question about what God thinks about it. But yet then he will divorce Israel when they commit sexual immorality with the other gods. And that's the metaphor that he uses throughout Hosea. Israel worshiping other gods is basically Israel cheating on their husband. So he, so, so he hates it, but when things are ex- in extreme instances, even God will divorce. But then God's love for Israel is such that even through divorce, he'll take them back, which you're not allowed to do under Torah. So all of this generated just thousands and thousands of, of hours worth of discussion among the rabbis and pages and pages and volumes. But it's really important uh, to see that that's what Jesus is entering into. So this, this debate, there's also another thing going on. When Jesus is having this discussion in Matthew and in Mark, both of this, he says, look on page 13. He does it in the Sermon on the Mount, and then when he's asked again later about it. So the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We'll talk about that one later. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, he says, he he seems to side with the Shammai school in this, that, that divorce is off limits, except for if there's adultery. But in Mark's version of it, which I've given you at the bottom of the page, we won't read it, in Mark's version and in Luke's version, they don't have that exception clause. He doesn't say, except for marital unfaithfulness. He just flat out says, anyone who divorces his wife, uh, marries another, commits adultery. So it's just this stark statement that Jesus makes. The question that Christian interpreters have about this uh, is, first of all, what do the words mean? I've given you in the box on the side of page 13. Um, this is from uh, John Jefferson Davis's book, Evangelical Ethics. He, he talks in, talking about marriage and divorce, and he notes a scholar, R.C.H. Lindsay, who, who's actually, what he says is, the, the, ver- the way this verb and noun, adultery and adulterer, are structured, is that, that they're, and I've given you here so you can verify it if you're a grammar nerd, but he says it's the, the passive infinitive, of the verb for to commit adultery. He says it should be translated or, or it, to bring about the nuance that that Greek passive infinitive form of the verb has would need to be translated something like he brings about that she is stigmatized as adulteress. Not that she becomes an adulterer, that commits adultery, but that she becomes seen as an adulteress. Why? Because that's why you divorce someone. So if you divorce your wife, it's basically everyone is saying, oh, well, she must have cheated on him. And if, and if uh, you know, so that, what he notes is a proposed translation he puts for Matthew 5.32, which kind of brings this out of the Greek text, is, um, you know, but I say to you that every man releasing his wife without cause of fornication or sex outside of marriage brings about that she is stigmatized as adulteress. And he who shall marry her that has been released is stigmatized as adulteress. In other words, they would, the, 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 the assumption in the community is that, that if there's a divorce, it's because someone has cheated or someone wants to cheat. Now, why would you say that? Because in a few chapters before, 
we found out that this, is, this, this wasn't theoretical in Israel. King Herod had a wife named Herodias. She was his wife because she left his brother to marry him. She left her husband to marry the brother of the husband. And they both kind of made the arrangements for this to happen. And John the Baptist criticized him vocally, publicly for it, and got thrown in jail. And continued to criticize him for it. And so when Herodias was able to, she did her scheming with, uh, with, with the Salome and the dancing and everything. You read the story about it, where basically she had John the Baptist beheaded. So when Jesus then makes this statement and talks about someone divorcing someone and marrying another, someone leaving and marrying another, in the minds of his hearers, it's very likely that what would have resonated was the fact that his cousin had just been put to death for criticizing that very thing among their king and queen. This would have been like, so Jesus saying anyone, so there's some people say it could also be translated as anyone who divorces uh, his wife in order to marry another. Anyone who leaves her husband in order to marry another. Now, the text doesn't say that. The text is stark. Jesus says anyone who divorces his wife and marries another. But the question the interpreters have is, with the background, with what's going on, is there something more that Jesus is talking about? He's speaking to a specific debate. He's not giving a general treatise on divorce. He's not speaking about divorce in general. He's, he's answering a specific debate, so he's entering into it. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Then his answer even contains shades of meaning that had political significance for what was going on at the time with Herodias and Herod and Philip. So all of that, and then combined with the fact that Jesus frequently spoke in stark, contrasting terms that were intentionally shocking. Jesus used prophetic hyperbole. Jesus made statements, anyone who would follow me, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they go, what? Jesus, do you want to explain that? Nope. And a bunch of followers leave him because they can't handle that. He doesn't run after him to correct him. He'd say things. He just said it in this passage. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's speaking literally. Some early Christians thought he did. There's cases of Christians mutilating themselves and then realizing, oh, this doesn't work. I still sin. Um, Jesus spoke in hyperbole. He made intentionally shocking statements. So him, for him to say adultery is, or, or divorce is adultery, that's a shocking statement. And it's meant to challenge his hearers. It's meant to be a shocking statement. It's meant to be wrestled with. But what we also see is later, um, so there's terms for this in, in, in Jewish discussion. There's, there's uh, halakha, which is, comes from the verb halak, which means to go or to walk. There's halakha, which are these like legal, prescriptive instructions about good conduct. Like in general, if you wanted to teach on something, you would do like halakhic teaching, like just this is how you should do. This is, it's kind of specific ethical teaching. But, but then there's hagarah type of 
from the verb to, to speak or to tell. And this is a, when you say something uh, that's effective, imaginative, using poetry or figures of speech or stories to, to inculcate attitudes, to instill mindsets, to be shocking. The prophets engaged in Haggadah a lot. Right? So the question that interpreters have is, is Jesus giving like halakha? Is he just saying, yeah, this is, this is what I believe about divorce, full stop. Or is he engaging in Haggadah? Is he saying, like, I'm going to, you know what? You're asking me about divorce? This was the command from the beginning. Marriage is to be permanent. In other words, is he intentionally putting forth the ideal, knowing that, yes, there will be times, just like in Israel's history, when the last case or the worst case scenario and the covenant is completely broken, there will be an exception where, where a divorce can be given. Interpreters, New Testament interpreters today are divided on that issue. Christian ethicists are divided on that issue. Some tend to see Jesus' words, and they put those as priority, and they say, you know, they, Jesus said it, no divorce except for actual adultery. Anything else is you're, you're creating adultery by divorcing. And others have said, no, wait a minute, Paul actually has something to say on divorce. On page 14, I've given you Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 He'll, he'll give advice about divorce and what should happen because a new situation arose among Christians as the gospel spread outside of Judea where once the gospel got outside of Jewish quarters and, and, and rabbinic thought was no longer the base uh, from which they were coming, the gospel started to have to adapt to situations where you encountered people coming to faith in this God of Israel and their spouse leaving them because they no longer worship the Roman or the Greek gods. So Paul had to write into that situation, which we'll look at in depth in a few weeks. And Paul's writing to them was basically saying, look, Christian, if your spouse is not a believer and you are, don't divorce your spouse just because of that. Yes, you're not supposed to marry unbelievers, but if you are already married to an unbeliever and you become a believer, you don't divorce because that marriage, there's still a sanctifying aspect to your marriage, and you may be the means by which God wins your spouse over, which has happened countless times in history of Christianity and was one of the major ways that the faith spread. And your children are sanctified because of your marriage, meaning your children are entered into the people of God because of your Christian influence in this marriage, this one flesh union that's been created. However, Paul goes on in that section to say, but if your spouse refuses to live with you in peace, refuses to go along with it and leaves, then you're no longer bound. You're free to marry someone else, but, but in the Lord. You have to marry a believer. That's what Paul says. So Paul adds another case in which divorce can be okay. That of a spouse abandoning or a spouse refusing to live with the person who's a Christian. So then that makes ethicists go, okay, so Jesus set the bar high but allowed for an adultery exception in Matthew. Paul comes along and adds another exception for a new situation that they've encountered, which is for abandonment. Do we see a trajectory? Do we see that, that Scripture is allowing for, here is the reality, but there can be exceptions to this? So then when we hear about someone who's in a relationship where they're being abused physically, do we do what some Christians have done over the years and say, just pray through it, stay with them, endure the beatings, and pray through it? Is that holding up the ideal of marriage from the beginning? Or... 
is the act of beating your spouse an inherent breaking of the covenant that you agreed with, and thus the same, if not actually worse, than the abandonment that Paul was writing about. And so there are some Christians that say, absolutely, a divorce is acceptable in cases like that, or abusing the children, or fill in the blank. Now, there's a tension there. There's a tension that Christians have to live with. These are some things that we consider when we're looking at divorce. We're going to end with this tonight. We have to consider when you're thinking about divorce and you're looking at the passages and what it says, first consider the temporary post-fall nature of the Old Testament laws. The Old Testament laws were temporary. It was not supposed to be this way from the beginning, and Jesus was bringing the kingdom to its fullest, uh, to its, to its fullest experience through his ministry. The Old Testament laws were to guide Israel, or as Paul says, to be Israel's schoolmaster, Israel's tutor, to get them from infancy as a nation as a people of God, to the time when Messiah arrives on the scene and they enter into the new covenant. So the old covenant laws, there's a reason, you know, when people go, oh, well, why don't you, why don't you believe the Old Testament? What, do you pick and choose from the Bible? No, because I read the Bible as a whole and realize that the Old Testament laws were never our laws to begin with. They were written to Israel under the covenant at Mount Sinai. They reveal some things about God that are permanent, and we'll get into that later, but the laws themselves, you have to take that into account, temporary. Second, you have to take out the intentions that are found within Scripture as a whole when it comes to divorce. Those tensions like Moses allows for it, God says he hates it, but yet at the extreme case when Israel's broken the covenant, God will do it. And then God will take Israel back in defiance seemingly of the law that he's given Israel through Torah. And then Jesus will say, no divorce. Then in Matthew, he'll say, no divorce, well, except for unfaithfulness. Then Paul will come along and say, well, if the spouse leaves and abandons. So there's some tensions. There's some ambiguity around the issue of divorce in Scripture that a Christian ethic has to work through before arriving at a point of view, of which there are many. Now, other issues that could compare, when it comes to, as we'll see later, when it comes to issues of same-sex practices, of homosexuality, you don't see this tension. There are no contrary examples. It, the trajectory is entirely one way, and it's prohibitive. Same thing with sexual immorality or promiscuity. There, there aren't like, well, it's okay in this case. There, there aren't exceptions. It's like, no, it's bad. So there, but, but divorce isn't like that. You have to keep in mind, again, God's remarrying Israel after divorcing them. There's some scripture there that you can look at if you want to check more into that. And then, again, the prophetic hyperbole of many of Jesus' sayings. Jesus, when, just because Jesus says something doesn't mean that's exactly what he meant. Now, that sounds like, whoa, wait a minute. You, you, you go to Good Shepherd. Y'all hold the Bible up every week. You're supposed to sit under its authority. Well, we do sit under its authority when it's read as it was intended to be written. And when, when G, no, I don't care how literalist somebody is, no matter how fundamentalist, how much they claim to uphold the Bible, and I just read the plain meanings, and the Bible says it, that settles it, that's all I need to know. Look at them and say, I notice you still have both of your eyes. And I notice that your right hand has not been cut off. And when we met, when you walked up to me, you did not greet me with a holy kiss. So do you really take the Bible literally? Because all three of those things are commanded in, in Scripture, if you take it exactly literally. The point is that Jesus frequently spoke in non-literal ways, and he used hyperbole a lot because he was a prophet. He was the prophet of all prophets, and the prophets used hyperbole. Last thing to consider 
when we come to divorce is the seriousness of ripping apart the one flesh covenant union, particularly to children. There's no coincidence that the next section in, in, right around this part in the Gospels is when Jesus then says, don't keep the little children from coming to me. Immediately after speaking on divorce, he shows his care for the children. Who are the victims of divorce? Every divorce, the victim is the child. Even if it's a good, like a, divorce, a quote, good divorce, even if it's a divorce that's acceptable ethically, if children are involved, they are still a victim. God, when it comes to divorce, when it comes to divorce, God does hate it. When it comes to divorce, divorce always involves sin. Always. Either on one partner's part or both. It is not the unforgivable sin. It is not a sin that excludes someone from the kingdom permanently. But it does rip apart what God intended from the beginning to be that permanent, one flesh, sexual, physical, intimate bonding that is that's what he desires for his people. The garden in which sexuality is supposed to take place. We're out of time. Uh, I've given you an appendix on page 16 that has more about divorce and remarriage. It's a, a professor of mine wrote it, Walt Kaiser, and it's, it's excellent. It goes through some of the, just some of the thinking through. Next week, hot Bible sex. Get ready. It's going to get steamy. If you blush easily, be prepared. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the song, and uh, it's going to be interesting. So, uh, Lord, thank you for this time that we've had together. I pray that you send everyone out here, out of here tonight uh, with, with their minds full, with their hearts full of, of thinking about who, who we truly are as people, who we are as sexual beings, however that looks in our lives or has looked on our journey. Lord, I pray that you would get us thinking consciously about sex in, in, in a right way, in a holy way, and that you would also uh, instill in us that we are the people who are living out the ethic or are called to live out the ethic that you have for your kingdom. And so our views and our, our practices and our behavior, uh, it will be different from that of the world around us, and that's okay. I pray that you would just continue to use this course to mold and guide and shape people as we work through our sexual ethic and as we arrive at uh, a place where we can speak life into this area where society uh, seems to be floundering so much in so many different directions. Thank you, Lord, for this week. Thank you for Good Shepherd uh, putting on classes like this and, and, in, and investing in its people to take them deeper in their faith, Lord. We ask that you would bring us back safely next week. In Jesus' name, amen.